You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 023, with Anas Lindell, co-founder and chairman of Informed Portfolio Management. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I know how valuable your time is, so I do appreciate you spending some of it here with me. And also thank you so much for sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really does help me expand the reach of the podcast so that more people can learn from my amazing guests. On today's show, I'm talking to Anas Lindell, co-founder and chairman of IPM. Anas was influenced early on in his career by some extreme market events such as the equity crash of 1987 and the attack on the Swedish Central Bank in 1992 where overnight rates reached 500% to essentially go down the path of finding value in going against price drift and dislocation away from the fair value or intrinsic value of markets. This path has taken him to the top of the hedge fund universe with more than $7 billion under management in a relatively short period of time. IPM's global macro strategy is fascinating in its structure and so is the story of how Anas realized his success. For those of you who are new to the show, I just want to let you know that you can find all of the show notes, including a full transcript of today's episode on the toptradersunplugged.com website. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will really enjoy this. Anas, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Nils. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. Fantastic. Now, as I was preparing for our conversation uh, today, I couldn't help think about the many times you hear on the financial media how a particular analyst or economist suddenly revise the estimates that they have or the forecast that they have for a particular market. And very rarely are these analysts held to their initial forecast. And I also seem to remember an old saying that if you give 10 economists the same set of data, they'll come up with 10 different opinions of what it means and what's going to happen. And I think most people would agree that this is not a good foundation of managing money. You you shouldn't be swayed in your opinion every time there's a new set of economic data being released as this happens nearly every day. So I'm interested in finding out through our conversation if you at any point in your beginning uh, belong to this type of analyst or economist that would revise forecasts and opinions based on new data or whether you've always had this 
can I say, rule-based or mechanical approach where you organize fundamental data so that it can be implemented in a non-emotional and disciplined way. So, and and with your investment universe truly being global, uh, I'm really excited about all the possible topics that we can talk about today. But before we go into all of these details about your company, where it is today, um, I'd really like if you could take us back to the beginning um, and telling us your story and what led you to take this path and and feel free to go back as far as you want. What would you like as a teenager or whatever you feel like sharing with us uh, today? Fantastic, Nils. Well, we shouldn't go so far back as as my teens. <laughs> uh, that, that wouldn't be far too much detail for this particular conversation. But Anyhow, I, I think it's material uh, for you know my future development and, and and also the origins of this firm that I actually started out as an engineer. Uh, so I went to you know technical university in Sweden, uh, focused on 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 control theory and mathematics, okay. and indeed my first work uh, or job immediately after university was actually um, selling and, and designing, building, implementing control systems for paper and pulp mills. Okay. Um, and obviously, you know, this is a very structured process, one has to, you know, account for you know, various inputs and data given by, um, you know, a large number of various sensors and one has to respond or program the system to respond, um, you know, in a repeatable and controllable fashion. Sure. So I think th this is this is actually quite relevant. Um, following that, um, you know, I spent a couple of years doing that. I, I um, uh, further educated myself in, in the fields of, in the field of finance. And then started up a career uh, at a fixed income trading house called um, JP Bank, um, a domestic Swedish uh, bank at the time. And uh, now we're at in, in, in 1993. Okay. Um, here I started out as an analyst um, and uh, basically spent my uh, first year there analyzing um, um, uh, commercial paper programs for uh, various corporates that the bank represented on 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 the on the market. Okay. Um, moving on, uh, I um, uh, moved to the position as economist, and this is basically very much focused on 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 macroeconomy. Mm -hmm. And indeed, as this was a domestic um, domestic house, ninety nine percent, I dare say, of the focus was actually um, uh, a Swedish. Uh, government finances and, and political development. Okay. And as I'm sure you recall, uh, those were quite interesting days uh, following first, uh, you know, in, in the early 90s, the sort of famous attack by a certain uh, George Soros on, mm. on Bank of England, and then um, uh, probably a globally half-coordinated attack on, on, on um, the Swedish currency, you know, into bank rates moving as high as 500% late fall 1992. Yeah. Then we had our own crisis. So basically what we did then was, you know, to inform our clients to the best of our abilities of, of uh, any underlying macroeconomic and, and, um, and the political trends that would 
lead to a significant improvement in 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 government financing and and, and the debt situation. And this is indeed something that a, a large number of um, global macro funds focused uh, a lot on um, as they took significant positions in, in, in Swedish government debt. Okay. Um, so in, in, you know, touching on, on your initial question there, you know, have I been an <coughs> analyst that, that sort of revises and changes? Well, to some extent, obviously one has to account for new information as, as and when it, it gets released. On the other hand, I think it's it's always important to note that you know individual data points may may actually lead you astray and and quite significantly so uh, as a, a you know an, an economy actually does move in 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 um, and change in a relatively um, slow and moderate fashion. Mm. Uh, it would be rare unless we're talking about uh, you know potentially countries. Um, like Argentina or whatever, uh, sure. to see developed economies um, turn uh, 180 degrees overnight. Right. Uh, so this has always been, in my mind, a, a slow-moving process. One has to account for uh, obviously new data, but only you know as an average and and and, and trying to see the the longer-term development rather than focusing too much on individual data numbers. Sure. sure. Um, so these were very interesting time, uh, times, obviously, trading, fixed income and, and Swedish cabinet in, in, in the early 90s. Yeah. As the Swedish economy started improving, uh, mid-90s um, and basically throughout the 90s, um, spreads to uh, international markets, most notably the German market, um, uh, started compressing quite a bit, which uh, is obviously what our uh, clientele had focused on mm-hmm. and hoped for. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, as, as things sort of stabilizing, actually the fixed income market domestically in Sweden uh, got a lot less interesting than, than it had been. Um, so by 97 or so, um, I, I actually started thinking uh, together with uh, my co-founding partner who also worked at uh, JP Bank at the time. We actually started thinking about, you know, uh, a next move. Uh, what could we do together that sure. would um, um, that would make sense going forward? Because none of us, neither of us, uh, felt that uh, this particular market was the place to stay around for another few years. Sure. Um, so actually, in early 1998, um, and, and with the background of many of our clients being not only international hedge funds, but also a, a large number of more traditional asset managers, um, uh, pension funds, uh, life insurance companies, etc., um, most of them uh, in Europe, we started thinking a little bit about our experiences in, in, in dealing with them. Mm-hmm. And um, one topic, you know, came back over and over again and that was um, you know from a pension fund perspective and a life insurance company perspective how do you you know what what's the most what's the most important decision that you have to make as a a, a long-term investor mm. uh, to gain um, you know relevant returns on 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 your um, on your funds sure and you know the asset allocation decision um, you know, seemed uh, to us to be central. And obviously there are two parts to this. Uh, most of these funds then and now 
um, have a strategic long-term asset allocation uh, where they set targets for you know any number of years, three to five years typically. How are we going to be invested in what asset classes are we going to be invested? But there's also a shorter term, uh, quite interesting decision that is uh, being made frequently by these funds. That is, you know, how do we deal with tactical deviations from these long-term strategic um, um, uh, targets? Okay. And you can you can you know end up in 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 sort of a situation where you deviate uh, intentionally. Or you can end up there because you've taken, um, uh, you, you've let markets uh, basically push you in that direction. Sure. sure. So, irrespective of what has actually taken you to that point, how do you deal with the situation? Um, you know, do you want to continue deviate from your benchmark? Take, mm. uh, you know, allow that tactical bet, whether intentional or unintentional, uh, to continue to play out, or uh, do you want to reduce or indeed even increase that that positioning uh, relative to benchmarks? So this tactical asset allocation decision is is immensely important. Mm. Now, at the time, most pensions and, and lifers, I dare say, at least in Europe, uh, made these decisions, um, you know, in a very sort of traditional way that, that uh, obviously had made a lot of sense up until then. Sure. Um, basically by, you know, they had their in-house economists and they invited the investment bank and other, uh, you know, more independent economists and they read a lot of research and then they had an investment committee that sat down on monthly or quarterly frequency, compiling and analyzing all of this data from various sources and, and then making a decision uh, to the best of their ability. Sure. Um, and obviously, they were also exposed to you know the an- analytical community and uh, economist community um, changing their views and revising based on data points. So there's a lot of noise going into this process. Right. Another thing one has to bear in mind is that most of the decisions made by these committees or, or other um, sort of organs ma- ma- making those decisions um, were typically relatively modest in, in, in size. People, based on this information, knowing full well that it's a noisy and it's hard to analyze, rarely dared to make the bigger, bolder bets sure. that would actually make um, uh, make the, the, the needle turn right. at, at the bottom line. Right. So uh, perhaps I'm exaggerating a bit, but you know the typical outcome of this would be to change your 60-40 uh, <laughs> stock, stock bond exposure to 58-42. Yeah. Um, this may or may not have been right. You may or may, may not have have had the you know the solid background to do it. Sure. But irrespective of which, it's 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 a long and uh, cumbersome exercise um, that really contributed a whole lot uh, to the bottom line. What we had observed also, though, was that over in the U.S., um, a few firms had already started uh, helping pension fund and and, and um, you know long-term institutional investors with these decisions uh, by way of of providing uh, basically an investment service mm-hmm. um, to help them take more informed decisions based on you know a solid set of information, uh, solid methods, and and really do this in a repeatable fashion. 
so this is really what triggered us to 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 start up this firm um, early 98 we sat down and said you know let let's try and do this to help mostly european uh, pensions and lifers with their tactical asset allocation decisions mm-hmm. so this is really the the starting point of of the firm sure sure um before you maybe bring us sort of uh, up to speed on then what happened from 98 and 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 to where you are now i, I just want to go back a little bit to to the early 90s because you mentioned of course in 1992 the swedish central bank was offering 500% overnight rates and i also seem to remember that in 94 i think it was we had a, a bit of a surprise from the fed that caught some people off guard in in terms of uh, the rate in environment mm-hmm. and And I just wonder, these extremes happening so early on, and I say early on in your career, but I don't mean it like that because I'm not entirely sure exactly when you would say you your career started, but but these extremes, do you think that they really were the, the ones that impacted you in in focusing on 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 relative value, saying, I want to be a little bit of a contrarian when these things happen because it doesn't make sense. We're not going to have 500% overnight rates forever. We we need to do something going against that. Or, or Yeah, it's a good observation. And, and you can actually throw in another uh, sort of big event in, in uh, 1987 um, when um, I had actually, um, on my personal account, still, mm-hmm. still in school, started trading a bit. Okay. Uh, I actually had uh, rather big positions in the options market mm-hmm. um, without really uh, knowing too much of what I was doing. You know, obviously, I'd, I'd noted that you know, trading options for the better part of '86 and early '87, I'd made um, you know decent profits for sure. a student, um, sure. and then I pretty much lost lost it all uh, in 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 the ensuing equity equity market crash. Yeah. That was sort of formative. Um, um, it, it, it's a brutal way of learning that before you start doing stuff and, and trading stuff, you, you should really know yeah. all of the ins and outs uh, rather than just going with the flow. Uh, I think both of the, 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 the events that you mentioned, you know, the, 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 90, uh, the 92, 500% rates uh, here in Sweden, the 94 uh, Fed hike, but I think perhaps even more, i, I, I learned this sort of longer term outlook and, and, and the value of patience and solid analysis by from many of the counterparts that we traded with and and, and um, you know basically the the, the um, global macro hedge funds right that's you- sort of coming into the market mm-hmm. with a view clearly stating that hey you know Uh, a currency at 523 24 25 to the to the Deutsche and and spreads of several hundred basis points you know this is going to play out in our direction over mm. time mm. but you got to be patient um, th- these are positions that you build to take a, l- a longer term view and and really uh, profit over the course of a couple of years rather than You know, trading in and out on individual months, or or, or trading, you know, too much based on 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 um, sort of market volatility sure. following the Fed hike, etc. So I, I think this way of analyzing markets with a longer term view, trying to get rid of the noise, um, and really uh, performing the analysis based on 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 sound theory. Yeah. Uh, probably came from there. Okay. Did you have any mentors when you first started out that you kind of looked up to or, or, or someone who looked after you in a sense? 
not really mentors. Obviously, um, you know, some some of the folks and analysts at, at these um, global macro hedge funds uh, were were quite interesting people, and, mm. and um, you know, try to learn from them. We also had. Um, you know, management at JP Bank uh, and head of the fixed income department at the time was a certain uh, Kent Janiel, mm-hmm. uh, who sure. subsequently started up the um, uh, uh, hedge fund Nectar. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was a demanding boss. He, he required nothing less than, than, than um, perfectionism, really, in our analys- uh, analysis, even down to, you know, the way we produced reports and, and, you know, how we've phrased ourselves and, and what conclusions that could be drawn and not be drawn, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and he was also a person that I think was among the first to bring in to Sweden a, a more quantitative approach to, to trading fixed income mm-hmm. based on his experiences from, from uh, working in, in, in London a couple of years earlier. Mm-hmm. So perhaps he wasn't necessarily a mentor, but he was certainly a person that, that sort of set the bar yeah. uh, and the standards. Sure, sure. Before we uh, leave your story completely, um, today, of course, uh, you know, I know you have stepped down as the CEO, but but uh, being part of IPM and being chairman of that uh, today is obviously a big part of your life. But what do you spend your time doing when, when you're not focusing on, on the business? Oh, there's a lot of things that can be done. Uh, I've got three kids. Um, okay. That's a time-consuming business. Um, sure. uh, and obviously approaching 50 years of age, one enters into a period when one has to start looking after health uh, sure. a lot more. So I've taken to you know, mountain biking, uh, long-distance uh, running. Okay. Um, but this is more to you know sort of a housekeeping thingy, sure. but it's also fun. Yeah. Uh, the greatest fun uh, you know of work would probably be um, you know downhill skiing. Okay, uh, spend a lot of time doing that. Fantastic, great stuff. Now I think for t- uh, today's uh, talk we're going to be focusing on the systematic macro program, but perhaps you could just mention the programs you run today and when they started and and what kind of uh, assets you run in in each of them. Sure. Um, basically, what we, we say that we, we only have two programs here at IPM. One is the systematic macro program, um, which is you know, a systematic global macro hedge fund. Yeah. Uh, and the other one is an equally systematic but long-only equity program. Mm-hmm. In the macro box, we're currently managing about 3 billion US. Mm-hmm. And the equity is about 4. Okay. However... The macro program can also be uh, run in, 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 in slightly different forms. You, you can carve out, for example, the currency program and trade that alone. You can carve out, and people do carve out currencies and, and, and fixed income and trade that as a separate strategy. Mm. But they're, 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 they're all part of the broader program. All we do when we carve something out is we, we, we simply um, turn off um, the other processes. Sure, sure. The macro program has been trading... Um, in, in in account format, basically since since 2002, okay. um, our pool vehicle started uh, in 2005. That was a currency vehicle, and in 2006, uh, the full macro program, um, both domiciled on the Caymans. Uh, the equity program has been running since early 2006. 
Fantastic, great stuff. Now, before we jump into the first sort of uh, topic, uh, more specifically to to IPM, I want to ask you, you mentioned the traditional 60-40 bond stock or stock bond, depending on whether you were European or US institution, they seem to have a little bit of a different uh, uh, asset allocation as far as I remember. Mm -hmm. Um, But the world has changed in the last 10, 20, 30 years, of course, and I just wonder, from a really big picture point of view, how do you see them dealing with this asset allocation, not from, from what you do, but from what they do and how they may interact with firms like you? I mean, are they becoming more open? So it's not just 48, uh, you know, 52 that they change to or whatever it might be. I mean, are they trying, starting to take bolder decisions in their, uh, in their own asset allocation? There's a whole range of answers to that. I think generally uh, the answer would be yes okay. uh, on sort of a global basis. Mm-hmm. I think uh, if you look at, at U.S. Uh, institutional investors, they probably come further than um, than uh, European their European counterparts in uh, allocating very significant parts uh, of the risk budget to you know. Uh, folks like ourselves and and, and generally hedge funds, uh, whereas uh, you know in Europe finding a long term institution having a hedge fund allocation exceeding three four five percent would be unusual. Um, you know finding the same in uh, in the U.S. would would be the norm, uh, being north of that mm. even up to ten fifteen percent. Okay. That would be the norm. Um, but then, you know, you have obviously various examples. I mean, if you look at your own native country and the big pension fund there, ATP, they instituted, I believe, about 10 years ago, a radically different um, asset allocation uh, structure mm-hmm. from the traditional, where they basically, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, mm-hmm. but basically what they do is they sort of equal weight their risk budget across, you know, 10, 15 different um, uh, different asset classes, ranging yeah. from infrastructure to, um, you know, uh, traditional markets. Sure. Uh, so people are doing a, a, a large number of different things, but I think the general observation holds true that North Americans, generally speaking, uh, are much more into seeking alternative sources and allocating significant parts of the risk budget to those alternative sources of returns than than Europeans are. Sure. Um, obviously, this also has something to do with, uh, you know, the state generally of, of the pension systems. <clears throat> uh, if you look at U.S. pensions, uh, corporate and state, they are generally underfunded to a very large degree, mm. uh, you know, 60, 70 percent funding ratio, whereas most European countries um, that has funded pension systems uh, would have um, significantly higher funding ratios. Um, many of them actually 100% or better. Okay. So th- this obviously changes uh, your long-term strategic allocation. Yes, you've got to match liabilities, but if you're underfunded, um, and if you're running something at 70% funding ratio, then uh, you better seek uh, methods to, to make up for the um, for the shortfall uh, sure. pretty quickly. Sure. Now, it's interesting you mentioned ATP. Clearly, that's a big, big pension fund uh, in, in, in Denmark. And they have been, as you say, doing things that are a little bit different in the last few years. But what I... 
what I seem to remember also from the press, because they did set up an alpha team and so mm-hmm. on and so forth, to actually take some of these strategy uh, in-house, which I mm-hmm. think, uh, f- from from what I know, you actually are not uh, completely um, unfamiliar with that some of your clients might be wanting to learn from you, but we can talk about that. But what I also seem to remember about them is actually they ran into a little bit of problems from, I think, whether they were internal or more sort of image point of view about, you know, having people sitting inside a pension fund who could, in theory, earn a lot more than an average salaried person mm-hmm. because they were doing um, strategies and, and maybe returning some kind of uh, or earning some kind of performance fee. So I think actually part of that, unfortunately, has been um, shot down, but that might be isolated yes, to yes. them um, specifically. I mean, it's, it's a general problem. Yeah. Obviously, if you're going to bring in uh, people that can actually do this, yeah. Uh, you, you got to pay them uh, uh, market uh, market um, uh, average. Yeah. Otherwise, um, otherwise you're not going to be able to. Yeah. Uh, and, and additionally, I think uh, most of the people that have tried insourcing uh, have actually um, uh, reversed and, and stopped doing that. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons is is you know political yeah. um, and and recently regulatory. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also the fact that, that, that you, you know, inside an organization like that, you're not really going to have the entrepreneurial spirit that, that, that sort of constantly improves on this process. Whereas if you outsource to third parties um, that live each day by what they make, sure. um, that's going to be a different story. So inherently, I think insourcing um these rather specialized forms of management is is very difficult yeah interesting now um you mentioned sort of roughly seven billion dollars under management today i want to talk just a little bit about uh the organizational structure running a big company like that how how have you how have you decided to to organize it um and 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 what what things if anything um, are you able to to outsource today uh, in terms of making taking advantage of of technology uh, or specialized uh, firms helping out uh, and and just tell me a little bit about sort of your your organization as it stands today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the first point to note here uh, uh, by way of background is to know that we are 100% systematic mm-hmm. <clears throat> and by that we mean that everything that we do inside these two programs is actually you know coded into um, software code okay. um, and that's sort of a starting point and the, but it's also very important because with that structure, uh, we can do things uh, and we can scale the organization or, or the output from the organization completely differently from, from, from people um, that act um, more or less exclusively discretionarily. Yeah. So what we have at IPM, at the heart of IPM, is, is a research team uh, mm-hmm. comprising um, you know, about 10 people okay. supported by uh, another four systems developers. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, next to them out here on the on the trading floor, we have, um, you know, three traders uh, and a couple of guys on risk. And this is at the heart. Okay. So their daily task is is really running and maintaining the research team I'm talking about. They're really run, maintaining and further developing and researching um, the models that we employ. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, they are also the persons, you know, hitting the button on a daily basis to generate the trades and generally supervising that. But that's, in relative terms, a, a, a small part of, of, of the daily work, typically. Sure. Sure. So that's the main part of the machine. 
supporting them, we have uh, our own uh, back, um, or rather more middle office, sure. um, that you know does the traditional things. They they check for risk and and and, and they check positions and and they uh, reconciliate with counterparties and clients. Sure. Uh, but that's actually only for four persons. Mm-hmm. Um, the remainder of the firm then is is um, you know traditional functions, legal compliance, IT, yeah. uh, as opposed to systems development. IT would be infrastructure, business development, uh, key account management, or as we refer to them as investment strategists. Yeah. Uh, but it's really the organization is really designed with us being 100% systematic in mind. So, mm-hmm. and, and really to compare with someone, we're, we're probably organized pretty much like your average um, CTA. Yes, yeah, sounds like it. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, you, you wouldn't, there, there wouldn't be a big difference there. Although yeah. the inputs that we, that we use and, and the models that we use are completely different. But operationally, we've, we function pretty much the same. Okay. And in terms of... Um growth of the business um i mean i can imagine maybe legal and compliance is an area that's always going to grow with the way the world goes but other than yeah. that other than that uh, um where where do you see sort of uh where would you like to see the aum go to um sort of based on 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 what you have now and 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 it sounds like you don't really need a lot of changes even if you had significant uh, increase in aum uh, it's a question we always get, and, and the typical answer would probably be that you know I'd, I'd like to see the, our potential realized, and, and by that I mean that we'd like to get uh, our AUM proportional to you know the, the the size of the asset pools in various markets uh, globally, and, and that's a cryptic way of saying that we we uh, we could see a lot more coming in from the U.S. We just started marketing over in the U.S. a few years ago. Got registered as SEC, CFTC, all of those things. Okay. But it, it's obviously a hard market to break into. Sure. And and today we we have you know uh, a very a very small amount coming from there. But if we're going to move to a position over the coming three years where our AUM split reflects um, you know the global asset split right. then uh, we would probably double to even triple our sure. AUM sure. Uh, which is of course a very ambitious goal over 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 something like 3 years but you know uh, longer term we we like to get to that point and yes as you observed that does not mean that we're going to have to employ a large number of, of people obviously you know some business developers or an, 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 and a few account managers but in terms of research and, and, and other operations, uh, not a whole lot. No. Just one sort of final area before we, we jump on to sort of more the, the program specific issue. Um, how do you spot talent that you want to hire for your business? What, what are the skills that you're looking for uh, today? And, and are these skills different than maybe five years or 10 years ago? Um, it, it, it's an interesting question that, that, that you know, we, we can spin different ways because it, it actually applies to many of the things that we do also on research. Uh, we're not out there just looking for general talent. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, we get a, 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 you know, a few applications per week from very talented people sure. globally and, and, and domestically. Um, but um, we're not 
too interested in that. Rather, we, we're taking the opposite approach. We're saying, you know, here's our team. Here's what we want to do. What do we need to get there? Right. Do we have the talent we need or is there a specific area uh, that is not you know, completely covered? If we find such an area, then we actually go looking for that specific talent mm. uh, rather than you know, the reverse. And the same actually holds true for our general research, uh, how we further develop the model. Same approach. We're looking at the model. We're, we're trying to identify... You know, obviously strengths, but, but, but most, most of the focus is, is um, uh, quite obviously on, on, on weaknesses. Sure. So once we have identified weaknesses and areas for further improvement, that's when we try and define how do, how do, we, <clears throat> how do we fix that. Mm-hmm. And that goes into research mm-hmm. rather than you know, scouting the market for sort of general, uh, general sources of alpha. Right, right. Final question on this, Anders, and that is, how do you compensate and retain talented people? Because I'm not sure. I mean, the world has changed, and I'm not sure that it's just about financial reward anymore. What, you know, in order to make people stay with a firm long term? And we know in our business that if you have someone good, and especially in research and so on and so forth, that are a little bit sensitive, you ideally you want to keep people for the long run. How, 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 how do you see that? I fully agree with what you say. I, I, perhaps outside the financial centers of, of London and New York, but you know, increasingly even there, I think people are motivated by you know, job satisfaction, um, you know, having interesting jobs, being recognized for what they do um, properly um, rather than, than, than what you get in, in your paycheck uh, alone. Obviously, the paycheck is going to remain important in this business. And obviously, there's going to be competitors trying to poach our employees much as um, sure. um, anyone else's. But, you know, we, we, um, we reward people here based on, um, you know, what they contribute to long-term business development. Mm. And importantly, at this firm, we don't have um, remuneration systems focusing on individual returns like you know portfolio managers at prop desks or or whatever really everyone gets compensated based on company ebit Mm. and then we distribute that based on you know contribution to long-term development um, idea sharing uh, things like that internally Uh, obviously it does help uh, from a retainer uh, retainment perspective that we're based in stockholm sure relatively few uh, competitors would actually target Stockholm as, as, as a market to, to go looking for talent they can approach. Sure, sure. Interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really interesting uh, insight. Now, I want to jump to the sort of the next subject, which um, I tend to call track record. And what I mean by that is that um, looking at your track record as a whole and knowing that the market environment has changed over time, um, is there any particular way that uh, one should look at your track record, certain stages, certain points in time where you may have done some upgrades? Um, how do you look at it when you when you look back on your track record right now? I think uh, a very important point is that what we do, uh, as we do, you know, as we invest money, uh, client money, based on fundamental input and and you know thorough. Uh, economic analysis on of, of that input is that our program is going to be relatively long term in nature. Mm. 
you know, holding period is going to be significant. And it's really not meaningful to discuss, you know, three-month performance, six-month performance, even even annual might be misleading. So mm. really, you should look at, at our track record probably in the form of a three-year moving average or something like that. Right. That, that's point number one. Point number two is that you're referring to changing environment. And yes, uh, obviously, as we all know, the, the macro environment has changed quite a bit over the past, um, past 10, 15 years, sure. um, not least over the past six years with central bank interventions and ongoing interventions, et cetera, et cetera. But what we do is really um, playing markets very in, in a very relative sense against each other. So we're trading, you know, U.S. equities against uh, against um, German equities. Uh, we're trading uh, Canadian gavis against Japanese gavis, mm. and everything everything that a model does is is done in a very relative sense. We not we don't really care about the the absolute levels, for the most part. That's mm. sort of ninety percent of the story, which means that in terms of regimes and 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 changing environment, we're probably less sensitive than someone that models each instrument in its own right mm. and, and based on each instrument's sort of absolute, uh, absolute path. Mm. So really the way to evaluate this program is, is you know, uh, to recognize that you should be looking at three-year moving average, um, you know, bigger dislocations in mark various markets may go against us for some time. Typically they do come back. And, and most, you know, they almost always do. Uh, to my mind, they have always done so. But it may take a little bit of time. Um, so this, you know, longer term strategy and, and really relative. So I'm not saying that we are 100% immune against um, changes in, in regimes. Sure. But I'm trying to say that, you know, looking at a valuation factor um, on currencies, relative inflation between two countries, in the end, Relative inflation is always going to have a role in the pricing of that, uh, you know, currency pair, sure. irrespective of everything else that goes on. Over time, that will play a role. It may not play a role for three months, six months, even 18, 24 months, but eventually it's going to play out. Mm -hmm. So if you trust your fundamentals and you have the patience to sit it out, uh, knowing that you will bear, you know, some degree of drawdown risk, mm -hmm. then, you know, uh, it's a good thing to do. You mentioned, of course, that the last six years has been different, abnormal, maybe even uh, in terms of the uh, role that central banks uh, are playing. And if I understand you correctly, you're saying that actually over time these things will play out and it'll go back to normal. What what extremes, if I can use that word, uh, do you think we're seeing right now in this environment and that, that you think will be sort of the ones when they do go back to normal that we're going to feel the most? Uh, it, it is different, difficult to rank these extremes. Uh, generally, my personal view, and this is you know obviously way outside of, of, of our investment model view, sure. but my personal view would be that we're we're in a very stretched territory, um, both when it comes to quite obviously fixed income valuation and, and levels, but that's really controlled by central banks. But I also think uh, if you look at equity markets generally that are being driven and have been driven for a very very long time by you know cheap money, yeah, 
And you, 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 can, you can extend this and look at credit and, and you know, high yield or, or what have you. I think a large, you know, the bigger portion of, of, of asset markets, they're actually in stretched territory. They are heavily dependent on the continuation of, of cheap money. Sure. Um, so when that changes, and you know, indeed it's going to change at some point, um, we're probably in for a rough ride. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, Obviously, the central banks also know that you know if that if if they suddenly reverse this, uh, you know they would have a whole uh, community of depressed uh, pension funds and and other people to take care of. So, sure. I don't think they're going to make any drastic moves. No, 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 no. And in terms of the strategy over the years, uh, before we dive into the strategy itself, would you say what, what would you say is the sort of the, been the main upgrades or, or the evolution of the strategy I guess uh, over the years and I, I wonder also in that particular point about I understand the point about research and and, and, and finding new ways of, of maybe improving existing models but is there actually something that you would say model decay I mean where to a point where you would say a model um, doesn't work anymore and of course I can I can I can um, uh, assume that there are certain things that could completely change fundamentally that would make it you know redundant but but other than that i mean where you just say you know this this model might not work so it's not just about the new research i'm interested in it's actually also about whether there's been anything you had to take out along the Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. um i think generally speaking this is again a a long-term evolutionary process rather than um sort of big changes short term typically we would uh, introduce you know two maybe three changes to the model on an annual basis. Um, those could be additions of new, we refer to them as risk factors or, or sub-models in, in a more general uh, lingo. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could be uh, new risk analytics uh, methods being introduced into the system. Uh, they could indeed be entire new um, uh, uh, models and or asset classes. We just started mm-hmm. trading last year emerging market currencies. We haven't done that uh, uh, previously. Okay. Okay. Um, historically, though, uh, I would say a, a um, probably one of the bigger changes was uh, when uh, four years ago, almost to the day, uh, we relaxed the traditional tactical asset allocation um, restriction, namely that for whatever, you know, for every dollar you're, you're long something, you're going to be uh, a similar amount short. Okay. Which is, you know, really comes from the classic GTA world where, you know, if you overweight something, you've got to underweight something else. Right. We still retain this in all of our relative models where we trade equity markets against each other, bond markets against each other, and, and certainly currency markets. But the old time, you know, the, the, what was previously referred to as the global asset class decision, where you went long, you know, $100 worth of, of global equities, uh, you know, based on some composite, then you had to go short $100 worth of, of, of bonds. Uh, that one we relaxed uh, four years ago. So today, uh, we can actually be on, on in, in that dimension, <clears throat> we can be long both global stocks and bonds, uh, or short both. Sure, sure. Why, why did you relax it? What prompted you to actually make that change? That's a quite a. That's I mean, that's a big, 
philosophical change, perhaps. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big one, but yeah. it's also a very natural one because, yeah. again, as as we moved away from the classic um, GTAA type setting, and and most clients uh, did by saying this is you know another alpha source, this is a global macro systematic. Right. Then there's no particular reason to have it sure. uh, for, to, for for starters. Another reason is that from a pure trading and risk perspective, is not you know a very balanced way of doing decisions because uh, what was targeted at the GTA level was really dollars. Mm. So you know buying a hundred dollars worth of equities and shorting a hundred dollars worth of bonds, obviously that's not going to make you risk neutral in any sense of the word. <laughs> so, so from that perspective, it is not really meaningful restriction. Yeah. Additionally, if you look at Asset class correlation structure, it has changed quite a bit over mm. the past 15, 20 years. So, as that was built into the model, hard coded into the model, uh, it was probably, you know, even with the way we've designed the model today, prior to 95, 96, 97, we would probably have found ourselves in a situation where we were long stocks and short bonds most of the time, or vice versa, right? To the correlation structure. Whereas over the past few years, um, we have been long both or short both more often than not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I wanted to jump to the actual strategy and talk a little bit about that. Um, a couple of sort of questions initially is a little bit about how you would describe the objective of the strategy um, and, and, and also a little bit about, uh, you know, each strategy has a certain environment that it performs well in or it's been designed to form well in and, and, and vice versa. And I think maybe um, investors to some degree may not recognize this. They, they kind of buy things because they think they're just going to continue to make money, but they don't necessarily appreciate that there are certain times where the environment is simply not favorable for a particular strategy, but it doesn't mean the strategy is wrong. It just means that you have to accept that there's nothing that makes money every single day. Um, so how would you describe um, the, the, the strategy, the objective, and, and the environment it's been designed to to work well in? Mm. Um this is a strategy that we, we can run at uh, pretty much any risk level. Um, and, and we can all, always discuss what we mean by risk here. But mm -hmm. let, let's say we can run this at any level of expected volatility in the program. Right. Um, and most investors, uh, and, and as we cater only to institutions, they you know, would start, and we would, uh, start feeling uncomfortable north of sort of 20-25% expected. Uh, and your typical institution, um, really what they need to get out of something like this uh, is, you know, 10% net or thereabouts. Right. So what we've done is that we've said, you know, let, let's, let's uh, find a sweet spot for the strategy at, at sort of 10% net per annum to your client. Um, we need to run this uh, at, at a particular risk level measured mm -hmm. as ex-ante volatility um, to make sure that we you know, deliver in the end. And uh, indeed, that's pretty much where we are over, over the course of, of the published track record, which is based on one of our investment funds. Sure. We're you know, 9, 7, 9, 8. Sure. Um, with a strategy like this, so, uh, this is not accomplished by running a sharp or one and a half or two. Sure. We don't think this is realistic for this particular type strategy. 
given that we're always in the market in all of the instruments that we trade on a large number of themes, there is a significant risk of you know drawdowns on any different dimension. Anything north of one over the longer uh, period doesn't really uh, sound very plausible. So reasonable target for a strategy like this, and this goes, by the way, I, I guess for most systematic managers, mm-hmm. would be just south of one right. in, in terms of show up. What type of environment uh, is it designed to trade best in? Well, ideally, obviously, it should trade well in in, in any type of environment. But generally, as we build model based on fundamental input, we are concerned with GDP levels, we're concerned with inflation, we're concerned with um, changes in in money supply rates, etc., etc. We're relying on markets that at, over a reasonable time period responds rationally to these fundamental uh, variables. Uh, and that's a fancy way of saying we want the markets, even if they start deviating or they go against a particular, uh, a, a particular underlying fundamental development, that they will mean revert at some point in time. And we don't want that point to be five years out. We want that point to be you know, one year, one and a half years sure. out. And that means that if we are, find ourselves in, in a market environment where people simply don't care at all about fundamentals, uh, let's say they, they care more, more and only about you know, what the Fed does, mm. then you know, in such periods, this model could not be expected to perform optimally. It could still deliver, sure. uh, but then it becomes more of a random game. You know, the type of positions we we, we may enter such period in uh, holding may be the right ones, and they may also be the wrong ones. Sure. And there's really no way of telling. So in that period, uh, and and that you know shifts from you know period A to period B, uh, the model can be a little bit vulnerable. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. So if I so if I try to summarize uh, a little bit of that is that what you're trying to do from uh, an objective point of view is to to take risk in relation to the opportunities you see. Yes, very much so. Okay. Very much so. And 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 also, um, we know we've been in 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 a world where a lot of countries and certainly developed countries have tried to coordinate. That at least that's how I see it. Uh, uh, they're trying to sort of to coordinate their economies. There's more and more integration, and and if I look at different cycles uh, of of uh, of countries, they at least for a certain period of time where they were starting to to come together uh, much more coordinated. But now, of course, as we know, and I completely agree with you, the world seems very stretched, and there seems to be a lot of tension building up in trying to make everything. Um, the same, in lack of a better word, your strategy, in a sense, may find it more difficult to find opportunities as they are trying to coordinate. But now, where the maybe dispersions are building up, and 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 maybe more opportunities actually for this particular strategy are emerging. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's an obvious uh, sort of observation. I mean, if we started out in 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 the early two thousands, or or even in the nineties, if we had started out in the nineties. Uh, it would have been, you know, a large number of opportunities trading, 
you know, Dutch equities or against German equities yeah. or German equities against French equities. Um, today, that's not really meaningful. Right. Uh, we still trade uh, many, many European markets, but it would be rare for the model to find uh, or to recommend a position that where we would explicitly go, you know, long Germany again against a short position in France, right. simply because of the integ- in, in, integration. This is driven not only by authorities, uh, central banks, etc., but it's also driven by by a very natural development. I mean, the world does get, uh, you know, is getting much more integrated, mm-hmm. and certainly in Europe, countries and economies are getting a whole lot more integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and companies are getting in a whole lot more global. Today, you know, a, a very relevant question is to say, if you're trading the Dutch equity index, mm. what are you actually trading? Are you, are you trading the Dutch economy or is it a global energy play? Right. Um, so that, that's sort of one level of observations. But yes, you know, from, from a model perspective, as it gets more integrated and or as, as, as authorities, central banks tries to you know, control the markets, mm. we're going to have to look uh, elsewhere for for opportunity, which is one of the reasons we, we started trading emerging market currencies. And there are other things, uh, you know, in, 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 in the research pipeline, um, you know, other equity markets uh, and potentially other asset classes uh, that we're going to start trading over, over the coming few years, um, pending, you know, successful um, research process. So, as the world gets a more integrated place, yes, you're going to have to start looking at other instruments, uh, other asset classes, other segments of asset classes mm-hmm. um, to pick up on, on what you need to pick up on. That said, as we have been now in, in, um, in a long period where central banks have been very aggressive, um, you know, whether, whether we call that six years or, or three years, uh, four years, doesn't really matter. <laughs> We've been in a long period and people have started getting used to this so on a relative basis given that this is a a a global phenomenon Mm. so on a relative basis market action markets actually do trade around Mm. Uh, and it's meaningful to trade markets against each other on a relative basis although the opportunities per se may be a little bit smaller and volatility is certainly uh, a lot more compressed I think we'll probably touch upon this when we come to risk management because obviously maybe the fact that, as you say, opportunities become smaller, we've seen certain players uh, compensating by leveraging up and maybe that's come back to haunt them. I want to touch upon that a little bit later. I want to dive into the strategy and I want to ask you what global macro really means to you and how you've taken that concept and building your model. What kind of themes are you... Uh, focusing on and how you, you really structured taking so much information that you can obviously uh, get when you are talking about uh, 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 the globe as as your playing field, but structuring that into a a uh, systematic trading program. Mm. Um, one way of looking at this is to say that any global macro trader, and, and let's forget about systematic or dis- mm-hmm. discretionary for for the time being, any global macro trader would be interested in you know based on sound analysis, sound principles, you know, identify price discrepancies based on either something that's supposed to mean revert over time but is now moving south and, and you're taking position based on it's going to be moving north at some point mm-hmm. or you're taking position based on 
you're shorting a risk premium that, that seems to be excessively compressed at the current time, mm-hmm. or you're going long, you know, an opportunity where, where, so you're trying to use sound analysis to identify these situations and and what really di- differ uh, differentiates us from a discretionary trader would be to say that we have identified a large number of such opportunities uh, and, and they're coded in the form of risk factors. Mm-hmm. And we're always in the market for all of those, mm-hmm. but at a varying to a varying degree. So as you said earlier, we're actually going to take position direct, more or less directly proportional to identified opportunity. Mm-hmm. Whereas your discretionary manager, he would probably, you know, distill this and try and find one, two, three, maybe four, I don't know, of the strongest teams yeah. and then bet everything there. Right. And and then, then he, 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 you know, captures his profits um, and, and then moves to the next area. Mm. Whereas our model is for each of the markets we trade, for each of the themes we trade, pretty much in the market at all times. Right. Um, so at the, at you know, and this is at 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 the at the heart of the model. You know, we believe in mean reversion. Okay. Uh, for for certain certain phenomena, we believe in trading obviously risk premium. Mm. Um, you can go long and short depending on where you find yourself, etc. So the model is built in. On the one axis, you have five dimensions, and those would be the sub-models that we trade. So again, we trade relative models on emerging market currencies, uh, developed currencies, equities, and fixed income. And then we have this previously known as asset class, but directional components. So that's five dimensions in on one axis. Right. On the other axis, you would find you know, the types of phenomena that we're trying to pick up on. And this is <clears throat> common for all of the five sub-models. We're trying to identify um, value, right? Valuation drivers. Um, um, so, for example, you could uh, probably think that that something like purchasing power parity is is a sound valuation methodology for for currencies. So that would clearly go in the in the value box. Right. And similar type factors for other asset classes. The next dimension would be risk premium. Well, obviously, it put a risk premium long term, or 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 or, or bonds, or uh, in 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 currencies. You'd probably be talking. You you may, you may say that carry is a risk premium, and you know, indeed, I think it is. Sure. So things like that will go into risk premiums. We're trading both of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, thirdly, we find macroeconomic factors. Um, you know, as as uh, M two money supply um, uh, expands or contracts, as uh, government debt issuance expands or contracts, as um, uh, trade balances shifts between countries, mm. you could take position on that. Uh, and finally, we have a fourth um, uh, box that we refer to as market dynamics, mm-hmm. which is really our way of saying, here's the box where we put stuff that is really idiosyncratic to each of the asset classes we trade. So we would look at at the government bond curve, the yield curve or term structure, if you like. Mm -hmm. That would be something that we focus on in our efforts in in bond markets. It doesn't really apply uh, the same way when you trade currencies. Mm. Uh, We're trying to forecast things like investment flows, cross-border investment flows for currencies, 
which is probably much less relevant for 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 our equity trading. So you know, five sub models uh, sharing the the common four themes that all of them are equipped with. Uh, factors uh, identifying value, risk premia, macro um, macro developments, and 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 then the the fourth box uh, market dynamics. Sure, sure. So you have these this structure. Mm-hmm. So in practice, and 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 um, you know, uh, I hope you can <laughs> explain it much more elegant than I can. But I'm trying to really try and visualize it for for our listeners, just to you know, how do you do these things? So. Is it something along the lines where you would say, okay, let's look at inflation, and we say, okay, inflation is now going up in the U.S., so that's gonna, give, you know, if that happens, we have a model that looks at this and it gives a certain score uh, into a bigger pot, and then you have other things that gives other models that look at different things, and they all give a little bit of a score, if I can use that word, and and that then determines overall what your position should be in that particular currency in stock market or, or how do you how do you put all these themes together hmm. it's not, not not a bad way to phrase it actually okay. uh, but let me try and rephrase <laughs> and paraphrase that a Thank little you. bit um, so the first thing to know is that when we model we model you know everything in relation to global composites and this is really to get rid of of you know the otherwise the need to 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 model absolute developments Right. So when we're looking at uh, government bonds or government bond futures, to be to be precise, we're actually looking at h- how you know the, the prices and, and and the factors driving those uh, bonds behave in relation to global basket of such government bond futures. Same for equity index futures. Same for currencies. We're not looking, and, and this is probably enlightening. We're not looking at the traded currency pairs. Right. So most people would be looking at you know the dollar yen rate or euro dollar or whatever, um, but we're actually looking at the yen in isolation against a global basket of currencies. So we're right. forming, if you like, synthetic instruments when we model. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, everything is modeled in relation to its own history and risk-adjusted. The fancier way of saying it would be, you know, we're looking at, you know, normalized and risk-adjusted, and and really what comes out of this is Z-scores, you know, number of standard deviations away from equilibrium or right. long-term equilibrium. So when we're looking at, for example, something as simple as 10-year government bond rates as an indication for value in, right. in, in bond markets. We're taking, for example, the JGB rate, and we're comparing that to this global composite, but we're not taking it outright. We're taking its risk-adjusted deviation from where JGBs normally trade. Mm. And that's what we're comparing. So it wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't be meaningful to take the JGBs and compare them to T notes because they, they would always be, be, be expensive, right? Sure. So, sorry to interrupt on that point because sure. I think that's an interesting example because what is the norm in JGBs anymore? I mean, you know, five, 10 years ago, we thought, you know, maybe that was 3%. I don't know. I, I'm just picking a number here. But of course, now it's been locked at almost nothing for so many years. When does, when do you change the norm? Meaning, over how long a period do you actually need to look in order to say this must be the norm, and we are now away from that? Uh, 
For most markets and, and for most models, we're actually using as much information as we can. Okay. Um, you know, the, longer, the longest information reliable uh, right. that we have. And, and the basis, or the reason for doing that is, is, is really that, you know, markets will change and we will face different scenarios. But it is very, very difficult for us to say that, hey, you know, the, the past five years are going to be representative for the coming five years mm. or the past 10 years. Um, uh, you know, Bank of Japan just started their, their program a couple of years ago, well, a year sure. and a half ago, sure. uh, and that changed the equation. Um, who is to say that they're not going to stop next year? Yeah. So if we say that the norm today should be the past years, uh, past couple of years, JGB mm. uh, rates, and then apply that looking forward, and then all of a sudden the Bank of Japan stops doing what they're currently doing, mm. or they run into problems and cannot do it, and, and JGBs just explode. You know, we, we're going to be caught entirely off guard. That's sure. so trying to be unbiased by using as much information as we can. Obviously, right. if we were to find a situation, one extreme would be if a central bank actually starts pegging a currency. Right. Then you know the world has changed yeah. to the fact that we can't trade that instrument anymore because that instrument clearly will not respond to fundamental information. Is it important for you to understand why a market might move back to fair value or could you simply accept it as being everything moves in cycles and therefore at some point we're going to go back to the mean? It is important. Um, I, I think generally understanding is, is usually important. We think it's important that our clients understand what we do and how we do it. But in, in our modeling, we want to be able to understand, you know, what are the, the, the forces that would push prices away from or back to fair value? What are the forces that would cause a particular risk premium to become over or underpriced? and then subsequently to return to some longer-term equilibria. So it is important, and indeed we're trying to model those forces. So if you look at our model today, there's going to be factors that are stronger in one direction than the other. Mm. So in a sense, even though we it's, it's systematic, it's not a matter of just quantitatively assessing that there is a relationship that is stretched. It's actually also fundamentally understanding it, yes. why it's stretched. Yes, very okay. much so. Okay. Very much so. How many markets do you trade today, Anders? Uh, currently about uh, 40 markets. Okay. And um, am I right in saying that you don't actually trade anything over the counter? Well, or less. Uh, you know, currencies would be over the counter right. but, uh, for the most part, but uh, otherwise, you know, um, exchange traded, government bond futures, exchange traded, equity index futures, and then, then um, you know, currency forwards. Right. And it's all financial, so no commodities at this stage. That's correct. Right. Um, Which is not to say that we're not going to start trading commodities at some point in the future, but mm. um, at the current time, we don't. Right. Okay. Um, are there any of the types of strategies you use within each theme that you can try and, and uh, visualize for us? I know you've talked a little bit about it. Um, for example, I'd love to talk a little bit about carry. Mm -hmm. I'm no expert, um, but obviously carry has been quite a, a big uh, source of return for many people for a while. And actually my, my guest uh, last week was 
quite concerned about some of these trades that are being put on, uh, in, in his opinion, by large um, asset managers to compensate maybe for not making so much money in the directional uh, arena. Because if we look at currencies, at least developed currencies, volatility has gone down uh, uh, dramatically uh, in, in recent time. And, and so... Uh, you know, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how you see if, if you're going to drill down on, on sort of your carry models, how, how do they work? What do they look for um, in, in, in your world? Well, I, I think the, as a starting point, and, and this is, uh, I don't know who said that first, but carry trading is really about picking pennies in front of a steamroller. Exactly, yeah. Um, and the greedier you get, the closer to that steamroller you're going to be. Sure. Um, and, and, and typically... That's all for this episode of Top Traders Unplugged. We'd love for you to be a part of our community, so head over to toptradersunplugged.com and let us know what you thought of this episode in the comments section of the show notes. Take action, get involved, and suggest who you would like to see as a future guest on the show or how you think we can improve. Constructive comments will be rewarded with 30 days of free access to our premium member area. So head over there now, and we'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.